We've begun the year together as a church looking at what it means to follow Jesus so closely that we would be covered in what? His dust, right? We saw that when a rabbi called his Talmud to follow him, it was a relationship that uh, was more than just an academic relationship. It was a relationship that really was a life relationship. And the student would follow the rabbi, and the prayer was, follow the rabbi so closely that you would be covered in his dust, that you wouldn't just want to learn what the rabbi taught, but you wanted to actually be the rabbi in all his mannerisms, in his, in his way of speaking, his habits, that a Talmud wanted to be the rabbi. And that's our calling as followers of Jesus when it says be like Jesus, that we want to follow Jesus so closely that we would, if he would literally be walking down a dusty road, up Gridley Trail, that we would be f- covered in his dust. And last week we began a journey with Jesus down the road, the dusty road called Compassion. The dusty road called Compassion. With the prayer, the desire, asking the Lord, Lord, show us what, what it means to be biblically compassionate. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, assumptions and a, and a lot of, I think, uh, misconceptions about biblical compassion. And so on our journey over the last week and the next few weeks, we're going to be following Jesus and, and, and the scriptures, really, so closely. That, that we want to be like Jesus. If, if you remember last week, we saw that in the Old Testament, God is compassionate. Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6 told us, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and what? Compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Even those two verses, if, if you uh, are here this morning, even those might be a bit challenging. Depending on your upbringing, depending on your church background or not, you may have uh, somewhat of a skewed vision of who God is. I remember years ago I asked, uh, I was working with the men, and I did a little exercise. I said, okay, when you hear the word God, I just want you to draw a picture. I had handed out pieces of paper and said, I'm going to say the word God and just draw a picture of what comes to your mind when you think of God. And lo and behold, some of those papers were filled with lightning bolts and anger, right? The big principle in the sky just waiting and hovering for you to mess up again, right? And, and yet Exodus and Joel tell us that God is gracious and compassionate. So even there, you begin to go, well, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I don't have a complete picture of God. And then last week we focused on Mark 6, where Jesus and his disciples were so tired that uh, Jesus said, hey, I know you guys haven't had time to eat. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and let's just have some R&R, Right? So they had gotten in some boats, looking forward to some R&R. The people on the shore kind of figured out where they were going, and they sprinted. They ran, and they got there, and Jesus and his boys get off the boat. And instead of R&R, it was just more ministry. Just more ministry. Right? And in Mark 6.34, it said, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And we looked at that and we asked the question, well, okay, Jesus, he saw the crowd and he had compassion. But we were honest and we said, well, if you were one of his boys who had been hungry and tired and you were expecting some R&R and a good quiet meal with the fellas and you saw this large crowd coming, how would you have responded? Right? And we ask that question, you know, in, in, in real terms. Anyone here ever have a, an expectation of a quiet night at home? Right? Anyone have that expectation of that getaway weekend? And it was just all going to be perfect. And then it just Murphy's Laud you. 
right? Everything that could go, right? And so unmet expectations can cloud our compassion. And we looked at uh, several several options, I think, several alternatives to compassion that some of us uh, may have at times. Rather than compassionate, sometimes we're real critical, right? Sometimes rather than compassion, we can be kind of condemning or condescending. Oh, well, psh, if only they would get their act together, right? Maybe we're cynical. Maybe we get to the point, honestly, where rather than following Jesus down the road of compassion, we're just kind of callous, kind of callous. I shared this this quote that was written by a young teenage girl who, in a, very, in a moment of honesty, she says, I've been thinking much this year about the importance of caring, of the passion of life. I've often realized it takes courage to care. Caring is dangerous. It leaves you open to hurt and to looking like a fool. And perhaps it's because they've been hurt so often that people are afraid to care. I have found many places in my own life where I keep a secret store of indifference as a sort of self-protection. Right? And, and that kind of summarizes what we looked at and what we were challenged with last, last Sunday. Because my guess is 100% of the people in here want to be compassionate, want to follow Jesus down that road of compassion, and yet... How often have you found yourself, how often do I find myself kind of callous, numb, cynical, critical, right? And, and you just kind of go, where is this coming from, Lord? I mean, Jesus of all people could have been the most critical and callous, right? Think about that. Jesus, being God, knew everything and knew what was in man. If there's any one person on this planet who probably could have been like, get your act together, really? And yet here he is. And he sees the crowds in certain way, sheep without a shepherd, harassed, helpless. And we saw that 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 compassion in Jesus, initially, he starts to teach them. He realizes their real need is that they need a shepherd, the good shepherd. And he heals them and he meets their physical needs and their ailments. But at its core, Jesus, the good shepherd, says they are sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. They need to be taught. They need a relationship with the good shepherd, right? And we're going to continue down this road of, of compassion. And in fact, we're going to actually be in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah. We're going to look at Jonah, a book that perhaps we've never thought of in terms of the theme of compassion. But it is actually the theme of the book of Jonah. Turning to Jonah, I'm going to ask uh, for your patience this morning. I am getting over that flu bug that went around and is going around so four days ago. Anyone ever been so sick that you kind of like didn't, wouldn't even wish it on your worst enemy in a sense? You're like, yeah, that's about where I was four days ago. So I got a cough and everything like that. So I appreciate your patience uh, this morning. Jonah. And we're going to look at Jonah kind of in a survey sense. And the heart of Jonah, the prayer for this morning is, Lord, speak to us about compassion through this man named Jonah. Now, what's interesting, uh, Jonah, right, often terms, is it's a a whale of a story, right? Whale of a story. And here's the interesting thing, in case you didn't know, and we're just going to use this to kind of slide over there. Jesus actually affirms the miracle of Jonah. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've kind of wondered, well, did Jonah really happen? You know, I just heard this thing swallowed by a whale. It wasn't really swallowed by a whale. The word is fish. We don't know what kind of fish, but it was a fish. And um, the interesting thing in Matthew 12, it says, for as Jonah, this is Jesus speaking, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So just to kind of tuck that aside, if you ever wonder, well, how can I, you know, affirm that Jonah really happened? Jesus, right there, just affirmed that Jonah really happened. So kind of tuck that away for you apologists out there, that if you're a follower of Jesus, your rabbi just says right there that the story of Jonah is legit. 
Amen? All right, there you go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went abroad, aboard. He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now Jonah is a prophet. A prophet is a spokesperson for God. A prophet in the Bible isn't necessarily someone who's predicting the future. A prophet is a mouthpiece. He's a spokesperson for God. God tells Jonah, "Hey, go to the great city of Nineveh." All right. Nineveh was the capital of an ancient city called Assyria. Right? They were Gentiles. Now, the thing about the Assyrians or the Ninevites is they were a brutal, absolutely brutal, cruel, showed no mercy to their enemies' people, right? Absolutely brutal. There there are stories of what they would do to the people that they would conquer. They were also enemies of Israel, right? God used the Assyrians as part of his judgment on on Israel. Hosea 11.5 says, Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So God says, hey, Jonah, I'm calling you, right, to go preach against the people in Nineveh. Nineveh was about 550 miles east of where Jonah lived. Jonah says, nope, I'm going west to the coast of Spain. That's what, that's, what, that's what he does. Now, what's interesting is just based on these three verses, if you study that, there, there are some, some pretty, pretty heavy accusations made against Jonah just based on these three verses about why, why he went west instead of east. Some say it was fear, right? Kind of a reasonable fear. I'm not going there. I, I've, I've heard what they do. In fact, the things that they did... We're on the same level, if not worse, than what you've heard happened in, is happening in the Middle East over the last several years. Some of the crazy atrocities uh, committed by ISIS and those in the Middle East, that's, that's what Assyrians were known for. That's what the Ninevites were known for, and worse. Okay, So maybe it was fear. Maybe it was fear, and you know, Jonah's like, I'm not going there. Maybe it was just inconvenience. That's 550 miles away. That's a journey. What was interesting is oftentimes prophets of God kind of just were spokesmen for God right in their general area. To be told to go be my spokesman against a cruel and vicious people 550 miles away, maybe it was just like, I'm not going, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of time, energy, effort. It's a lot of journeys. Maybe it was just inconvenience. Some people kind of put this label on Jonah. He said he was just racist. He had such a hatred for the Assyrians that he just dismissed them. He would rather them suffer the condemnation and wrath of God. So he just wrote off an entire people group. Right? Some say that it, it was Jonah's patriotism. His politics is he was a hyper-nationalist and, and his patriotism was now superseding God's will. He was so protective against, for his people against these enemies that, that may have even come across the border where he lived. Some people think he, he may, his family may have been impacted by their raids that now he has become this patriot and now his patriotism has now superseded God's will and God's perspective, Right? Some say that Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't want to be seen as a traitor. Here's these brutal people, these enemies of Israel. Some people think that Jonah didn't want to go because if he went and God did something really good to these people, people might actually be mad at Jonah. Why'd you go there? We all wanted these people to be destroyed. Traitor, right? And it's interesting, and there's more, there's more on this list, and, and I was looking at this, and I'm like, wow, that's a pretty big list for three verses, you know? And here's the thing. By chapter 4, and we're going to see that today, Jonah actually tells us why he didn't go. 
So kind of tuck those away because there might be elements of truth in some of that. But by the time we get to chapter 4 today, you're going to see that Jonah himself will actually tell us why he went west instead of east, right? So he gets on this boat, right? He decides, it says, to flee from the Lord. Now, we know in Psalms that's impossible to flee from the Lord, right? And yet how many of us at times have tried to flee from the Lord, Right? There's this little quote. It says, when a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan is always the happy to provide transportation or accommodations. Right? It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. Keep reading. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who was responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So it's interesting. Jonah gets on board the ship. They start heading. God sends this huge storm, right? And where's Jonah? Asleep. The cause of the whole thing. He has put these sailors' lives in jeopardy. He has caused things to be now being thrown overboard. He has disrupted many lives, and he's asleep. And I thought about that in terms of our life and my life. Times when, when I've kind of had a rebellious, hardened heart, and I'm doing my thing, and I'm sort of spiritually asleep, and now I'm spiritually numb, and yet all around me, I've stirred up stuff. And all around me, lives are being impacted. And all around me, people are like, what's going on? Where is all this coming from? And little old me is just asleep just doing my thing, right? Isn't, isn't that interesting how, how our rebellion and our hardness can actually have huge impact on those around us and we're just oblivious. We're asleep. We're asleep. And the other thing here we have to be careful about, right? He's asleep. He gets on the ship. He pays the fare and everything seems to be going well. Got to be real careful in your walk with Jesus, that just because things and circumstances seem to be lining up, that may not necessarily mean it's God's will. Right? And sometimes in, in, in 25 years of ministry, I've, I've had counseling and, and people come up and they, you know, they want to know what to do. And I say, well, you know, that's really, that's not really in line with Scripture. That's not really in line with God's will. And, and sometimes people will say this, yeah, but I have a peace. Well, you've got to be real careful about that because Jonah had peace. He had such peace about what he was doing. He was asleep in the midst of a storm that he created. So you've got to be real careful about judging whether or not you're in God's will just by how you feel about it and just by circumstances because you can be completely blind. I can be completely blind to how we're impacting others, how we're impacting others. And so... This crew, right, they cry out to their own gods. It's like a bunch of pagan crew members all crying out to their own gods, and they decide to do some superstitious little casting of lots. And lo and behold, who gets outed? Jonah gets outed, right? Jonah gets outed. Verse 8. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. That last part, kind of a bit of confusion. Some people believe that when he he paid his fare, he kind of generically may have said that, I'm running from God. 
but didn't give out the whole details about who he was. So the crew kind of knew why he was there, but they're all pagans and they all have their own gods and maybe they're running too, who knows. But there's a sense that they might have known a little bit. But suddenly, look what he says in verse 9. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Sounds really good, doesn't it? How many times had he had said that, right? He made this great creed, this great doctrinal statement, right? This great theological statement. I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, what's wrong with that in light of what's going on? He makes this incredible doctrinal theological statement, and he's the cause of Everything that's happening. Apparently, worshiping the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the scene of land, doesn't include obedience. Do you see what I'm saying? He's hiding behind this great doctrinal, creedal, theological statement, and his life just betrayed him. He's just been betrayed. And here's the crazy thing. The pagan sailors get it. More than him. Look what they said. What have you done? Because suddenly, light bulbs are going on. They're connecting the dots. He's like, dude, he worships the God that made the sea. Like this storm is from his God. And all of a sudden, everything gets cleared. And they're like, what are you thinking, bozo? We're about to die. We've tossed all our cargo over. And here you are making some great theological statement. Right? It, it, it's, it's almost mind-numbing. These guys get it. In fact, if it says here, it says, look what it says in verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to roll back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It's interesting. There's no real sense of, you know, she says, oh, it's my fault. But instead of true repentance, he's like, just throw me overboard. I'm not really going to go east where I'm supposed to. There's no repentance as in, let's turn the ship back. Let's go east. I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. In fact, he says, bail, just toss me. Isn't that interesting? How many of us, when we're called out in our life, we have a choice. We can have genuine confession and repentance And genuinely turn away from our way and go and just begin the process of repentance and walking with the Lord according to his plan. Or, just kill me. Right? It's interesting. Just kick me out the church then. Right? It's so interesting. People people that we love around here and we, we share the truth with, right? We don't want you to go anywhere. We want you to go to the Lord. When we, when we speak to you about God's will and everything, it's not so that you say, okay, fine, I'm just going to find another church because I'm just leaving. Don't leave. We're here because we love you. We have compassion on you. Just do what the Bible says. Just repent. It's between you and the Lord. You don't have to like, just throw me overboard. You know? No. Just humble yourself and repent. Come to the Lord. That's all we're doing. That's all you need to do. The pagan sailors were terrified of his God more than Jonah. They didn't want to throw him over. They were scared. And like, uh, throw me over. No, let's try to get him to shore. I'm not throwing him over. You throw him over. I'm not throwing him over. You throw him over. If we throw him over, we're all toast, right? So they try their best not to throw him over. Doesn't work. They can't get to dry land to get the guy off the ship. So they okay. Got to throw him over. They throw them over, and immediately they throw a sacrifice up to God. (laughs) See, they get it. 
They get it more than Jonah. More than Jonah. And then in verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. You know what that fish was? God's compassion. God's compassion. Think about that. God had directly commanded Jonah, go to those people. Jonah went the exact opposite direction. Jonah's asleep. Jonah has put all these people in peril. How many of us would have written Jonah off at that point? Let's find somebody else. But no. God sends this great fish, miraculously. Jonah's in there. And in chapter 2, Jonah has this prayer, right? This come to Jesus moment, as we call it. You know, if you got swallowed by a big fish, you'd probably have a pause and time out. Let me reflect. How did I get here? Right? From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on the dry land, right? So Jonah kind of has this reflection moment. He prays, pretty heartfelt prayer, right? God hears his prayer and goes, right? I don't know how a fish vomited him, but he vomited him, right? He ends up on dry land, right? And so, okay, maybe Jonah really did have a change of heart. Maybe, Maybe, right, that was a step, good step. He prayed. Kind of turned a little bit, sought God. God answered. He gets thrown onto dry land. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Some people think there was 500 to 600,000 people in Nineveh. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had what? Compassion. And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. How many would amen that revival? Right? Jonah gets vomited out. God says, now go. Jonah went. He goes to this sprawling city, 500, 600,000 people, begins this message of 40 days, right? They get it. All the way up to the king. King declares, whole city repents. Whole city responds to this message, right? Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. How many would call that a great mission trip? How many would count that really good and come back celebrating? Woo! Woo! Right? Not Jonah. Verse 4, 
But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Heart check. Heart check. Okay, think about this. A prophet of God, a spokesman for God, was sent to preach to a vile, wicked, cruel, barbaric people. These people, as a whole, repent. God has compassion, and this prophet of God is greatly displeased and angry. So there's still some issues in his heart. Not, he, there's, still, there's still a hardness. There's still something that Jonah has not submitted to. There's still something he's battling, as reflected in his reaction. As reflected, right? Does the Bible say, guard your heart, for out of it full the wellsprings of life, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our heart, the condition of our heart betrays us, reveals where we are. It really does, in many ways, right? And now in verse 2, Jonah tells us what's going on and why he initially disobeyed back from verse in chapter 1. Look what he says. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, verse 2, O Lord, is, is this not what I said when I was still at home? And then he goes on to paraphrase Exodus 34, 6. He's like, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. You gracious God, you compassionate God, I knew that if you sent me to Nineveh, they would probably repent. And if they did, you gracious, compassionate God would forgive them. Who do you think you are? He's angry at God for being God. Somehow or another, this is all about him. He can't get over his bad self. He has put God into such a box and his theology is so correct about who God will forgive and who God won't forgive and who deserves hell and who deserves wrath and who deserves forgiveness that even God can't get out of Jonah's box. And when God moves sovereignly according to his character and his nature, Jonah gets angry at God. Man. That's, that's weighty. That's weighty. Because I wonder how many of us have our boxes. And how many of us, maybe we'll never admit it, or we will admit it to very few but we struggle with God's graciousness and compassion even today. Maybe there are people that you've written off. People in the Middle East, certain groups that you're like, you know what? To heck with them. I wish God would just smite them right now. Right? Maybe some of us have that secret store of indifference and we're just callous to it. We struggle. with, You know, we want to be biblically compassionate, man. Is there a group or even a person in your life if God called you to go share the gospel, you'd have a Jonah moment? I'm not going there. There's no way. I've been hurt. They did this. I'm angry. I just wish God would smite them. That's what I really want. If I'm really honest, I just wish God would smite them. The last thing I want is God to forgive them. It's a powerful, it's a powerful moment. And it's a, it, it, it's a moment that we all kind of, I 
think we have to be honest with ourselves about. Because this idea of biblical compassion, it's really easy the way our culture is with technology and the Internet and everything, right? There's Compassion International. And I love that ministry, and you, you, you want to just compassion now just serving. Nothing wrong with adopting a kid, and, and if God puts that on our heart, you need to do that out of compassion. But sometimes compassion now is just a matter of convenience. We're compassionate as long as it fits us, as long as it fits our box, as long as it fits our box about our life or our box about who God is. But once we get out of those boxes, do you really want to be compassionate? Do you really want to walk down and be covered in Jesus' dust down the road of compassion? Because God will use compassion to grow you, to mature you, to sanctify you, to transform you. Even here. Even here. Even through ministry. And I want, I want, to, I want to share a bit of my journey in, in compassion so you understand that I get it. Now, I've shared with you, and I don't know if it was before we moved here, but maybe it was before. I grew up in South San Diego. And uh, when I was in junior high and high school, we were in this... Uh, neighborhood and there was a lot of development that happened in those years part of my junior high and high school experience was that uh there was a lot of racial violence there were gangs around and the gangs were pretty much uh, by race just the way it was and uh i tried my best to avoid it i was in you know i did more of the honors ap all that kind of route and did the sports thing but it was inescapable inescapable on our campuses, our campuses were pretty much racially divided. There are certain parts of campus you don't go because certain race claimed that area of campus. That's how we grew up. And uh, experiences with different races weren't always pleasant. I had a lot of friends in different arenas, but just life is life and you deal with it. So it's very interesting that I go to UCLA, come back, I enroll at USD Law School, so I'm on my career track but I happened to get involved in youth ministry. My first experience of youth ministry at a church in uh, Claremont, which is kind of in central San Diego. So I'm serving in youth ministry in this church in Claremont, and this church attracts kids from all over San Diego County. And I live in the south. Claremont's here. I live in the south. And I get these information cards, and one of them is a student. And it's a student that would like to come to our youth group who lives, if you're familiar with San Diego, he lives in southeast San Diego, the inner city. Right? The hood. And that race of people, right, the African-American community there. Growing up, I didn't have real good experiences with. Right? So now, as a youth leader... I am asked, hey, there's a kid in southeast San Diego. Can you get him on your way to church every week? And I got triggered. I got triggered. Because that's not the part of San Diego that we ever went to ever even had a desire to go to. In fact, avoided. And now I'm being asked to go get a teenage guy that I don't even know. I don't even know him. I just got a name and an address. But you see, I live here, church is there. To get him is to do that. So there really is no wiggle room about me. I can't. There is no can't. It's on the way. It's an issue of will. Will I go get this teenage, this African-American teenage student in the heart of the African-American community in southeast San Diego? And I, you know, had to work through that. And there was the, the past, the not-so-pleasant past growing up, 
There was also fear. There was also fear. Certain parts of San Diego, you don't go to unless you have a reason to or you know someone. So there's an element of, okay, right? And I'll never forget the first day I went there. Find it, and it's an apartment complex, which is, from what I could tell, just observation, all African-American, and they all knew who lived there, and they know the cars, and they knew I didn't live there, and they didn't know my car. And I come rolling in on a Sunday, uh, midweek afternoon. Hey, is so-and-so here? I'm here to take him to youth group. <laughs> oh, yeah, let me go get him. And I didn't even know the guy. He comes to the car, meet, and off we went. Then I had to bring him back. And we built this relationship, and it was fine. It was fine. Nothing horrible happened. And God grew me through that. God challenged me in San Diego with this idea of having compassion. Compassion out of my comfort zone. Compassion go to a place in San Diego that I didn't want to go to. Right? And as part of this youth group, like I said, it reached all parts of San Diego. We rotated on Wednesday nights. We had midweek study. We were at a junior high campus, converted junior high campus. And we had developed a relationship with a law enforcement guy in El Cajon. So here's, here's Claremont, El Cajon, East San Diego, probably like 30 minutes from our church. And there's a group home there with gangsters, hardcore gangsters, teenage boys. And they had built the relationship. So we rotated as leaders to go get them. So I would drive 30 minutes to church, and if it was my turn, I'd drive 30 minutes to a group home to pick up a bunch of gangsters, put them in the church van, drive them to Bible study, and then at the end of the Bible study, drive 30 minutes back to drop off a bunch of gangsters and then come home and think of this. Kind of not what I thought youth group was going to be. <laughs> because, see, I had grown up in, in, in honors and, 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 and AP and went to college and was going to be a lawyer. I didn't expect God to call me to go pick up group home gangsters on Wednesday night. I didn't know what I was going to say. I mean, I'm, you know, my friends joked. They used to call me Richie Cunningham. That was my nickname growing up. I was all clean cut, didn't get in any trouble. It's like, hey, Richie Cunningham, what's up, Richie Cunningham? And so Richie Cunningham's driving the van to go pick up the gangsters from El Cajon. And we would bring them to Claremont. And then before Bible study, they would go across the street to 7-Eleven to get food or whatever. And then one Wednesday, the local gangsters find out we're bringing gangsters, so they come to the church and want to have a gang fight. And Richie Cunningham's trying to break it up. (laughs) You see, at a certain point, I was wrestling with God about this compassion thing. God, you have put me in these... In these, in these students' lives, and I, I don't even know them. I don't, I don't, I can't, it was, I was so foreign. And, and, and yet, if I'm honest, it, would just be, it was an issue of the will. Well, will you or won't you? Because it's not an issue of can or can't, is it? No. There's a church van you can use. Will you? Will you? And I got to tell you, God grew me through that. It was stretching. There were, there were, you know, when you take group home kids camping to the mountains for a weekend, that can be a challenge. That can be a challenge. But I realized in retrospect that God was, was enlarging and, and stretching, and, and I was wrestling with him all the way through this and all the while he's like just hang with me, just trust me, just trust me because it's for their sake, yes, but it's also for my sake. He was growing me up. He was challenging me to get out of my box. He was challenging me to trust him. He was challenging me to, to lay aside stereotypes and racist ideas I had in my head and, and, and really hardened heart about certain groups and a lot of stuff and, and, and stop living in so much fear and stop living in so much criticalness and judgmental and da-da-da, if they would just, if they would just, if they would just. And he said, you know what, can you put all that aside and just go? Can you put all that aside and just go do what I'm asking you to do? 
And he grew me through that. And, and he helped me to understand compassion wasn't about me. It's this much about me. It's just about being obedient and trusting God. Okay, Lord, you're gracious and compassionate. I'm here. I'm yielded. But I'm going to be honest. I'm scared to death. I'm going to be honest. The flesh in me, no way wants to do this. He's like, I know. Go anyway. Or bring a friend with you. Right? It's part of sanctification. It's part of sanctification. And this is where we have to be very careful that, that in our desire to be right and theological and doctrinal, that we're not just sort of actually trying to manipulate Scripture to, to suit us. I came across this, this powerful quote that just kind of knocked me for a loop. It's by Anne Lamott. She says, You can safely assume you've made God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. Whoa! I mean, right? According to Exodus and, and Joel, God's a God of graciousness and compassion. And yet everyone's vying to have him on their team. Now God wants to extend his compassion here and around the world. And it may require us to just say, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Right? Look what it says here. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? He's calling Jonah out. Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Apparently Jonah still thinks something's, there's going to be a show. He, deep down Jonah's going, I'm getting the front row seat on this. Maybe they were like just faking it. So he gets all comfy above the city waiting for God to do something, Right? Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to what? Die again and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. My gosh, Jonah. This is all about you. He gets this, he gets this seat on the mountain. Okay, watch the show. God causes his vine to grow up. Shade. Ah, now I have shade to watch the show. Next day, a worm. God sends a worm. Kill the vine. Are you kidding me? I'm hot. Now the wind's blowing. Oh, someone just kill me. You ever been around a drama king? This is like the ultimate drama king. I just want to die. I just want to die. I mean, I'm just like, dude, really? But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. And died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Many people believe that reference to 20,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left is a reference to kids. So 120,000 kids, a bunch of animals. That's why some people think the actual population was 500,000 plus. It says, hey, Jonah. Really? Think about the 120,000 kids then. You're so consumed with yourself. It's all about you. I'm going to die. Can you please take your eyes off yourself? Think about the 120,000 kids. Think about all the souls. Think about all the souls. Half a million souls over there. And you're here whining about a plant. And your own comfort. And what's interesting, look at, uh, this is the end of Jonah. We read through a whole book together. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You know what's interesting? The book of Jonah ends with a question. 
God doesn't clean it up, we never know what Jonah says, do we? It's kind of left hanging. And I believe that's intentional. We don't know what Jonah's heart, real, his heart change was. And I think God leaves it out as a question for us. Where do we land on this area of compassion? How many times is it so much about us and our creature comforts and, oh, oh, things aren't going my way and it's just not lining up in my plan. Oh, God, how dare you be so gracious and compassionate. Oh, I just want to die. Right? And so the book of Jonah ends with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Warren Wiersbe says this. We have little control over the circumstances of life. We can't control the weather or the economy, and we can't control what other people say about or do to us. There's only one area where we have control. We can rule the kingdom inside. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And that's what this is about. It's a heart issue. Jonah, in his heart, struggling with God being a compassionate God and the implications of that truth in his life. And I take that for us as individually and as a church and I put some questions there in your, in your notes. How is God using biblical compassion to sanctify you? Who are the Ninevites in your life? What reasons do you have for not having compassion for them? How are you trying to flee from God's will expressed through his word? What would it look like to repent and walk in obedience to God's command, to close yourself with compassion, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you? You see, if we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. He says, make disciples where? Of all nations, not just the ones you like. In Acts 1.8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yay! Judea. Yay! Samaria. Mm. And to the uttermost parts of the world. We're called to go everywhere. Even Samaria. People we hate. When the Jews heard Samaria in that list... Did he just say Samaria? I don't know. I'm not sure he said Samaria. Did he really say Samaria? We hate them Samaritans, don't we? Yeah, but Jesus just said we're going there. (sighs) Compassion. Compassion is really at the heart. If you look at the New Testament, it says repeatedly, Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus having compassion. Jesus, compassion. Jesus, compassion. It is the heartbeat of who we are as believers is compassion. And I shared with, with, with the worship team this morning, here's, here's the concern. Because we know that the church is made up of the people, right? If the church loses compassion, a church without compassion becomes a cathedral. Just a nice looking shell. There's cathedrals all over Europe. Beautiful structures, architecture. There's no life. Nothing spiritual, supernatural is happening anymore. And if a church loses its compassion, if this church loses its compassion, then we're just going to be a nice building in Ohio. People will still come and say, look at that nice building. Hey, look at that big cross outside. You've got to see inside. That is a beautiful cross on that wall. But it's all cathedral. It's all for show. Because we don't have compassion. We've lost our heart, right? And before communion, I just want to share this this parable I've shared before because if we're going to pursue our vision here to to passionately follow Jesus, we can never, never lose our compassion. And for some of us this morning, it might be a moment where you've got to sit down and say, Lord, Am I like Jonah? And if so, to what degree? This is called the parable of the life-saving station. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, 
there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some had skin of a different color. Some spoke a strange language, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club, where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. I look at that, and I'm like, how does that, how does that happen to the church? It's when we lose compassion, and we turn inward. It's a very fine line from compassion, and if you lose that, you go right to comfort and convenience. That fast. And if we're not careful, that would be devastating for us as a church. This church was birthed out of compassion. In 2010, there were several people that my wife and I had heard had met, reconnected with other churches in the valley. Many people were um, just displaced because of what happened at the previous church. And so we decided, the Lord put it on our heart, let's just gather them together. Let's just meet. Let's just have compassion for each other and where we're going and where we've been. And so this church was birthed out of compassion. And we celebrate that. Even today we celebrate that. That's still the heartbeat of this church. Compassion isn't just for going to Africa or Haiti and all that. That's all good. Compassion is for you today. Every ministry around here, the heart of it is compassion. The people in serving in children's right now, it's because we have compassion for kids. Youth ministry, we have compassion. Men tonight, it's because we have compassion for one another. Women's ministry, we don't just do it because we're supposed to, it's because we have compassion for each other. Compassion is not something you just throw money at, and compassion is not something that happens across the ocean. Compassion is to the person right next to you. Amen? We come every week because we have compassion for you. That's why we do this. That's why we do this. That's what we've been doing since day one. That's what we've been doing since day one. And I love Jesus as our role model because this is what happens. He's in the garden and he says, Hey, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please let it. And then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know what Jesus is submitting to? His Father's compassion. See, God's compassion, part of God's compassion for you and me was that Jesus would come and go to the cross. It wasn't clean. It wasn't convenient. It was messy and horrific. And yet, what does Jesus do? He submits to the ultimate compassion that God had for me and for you. 
That's our role model. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your example of yielding to the Father's compassion. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We thank you for Jonah this morning and what we can learn from his example. A man who was doctrinally sound, and yet there was a heart issue. And that heart issue centered on your compassion. Your compassion. And so as we prepare for communion, I pray this would be a time for us to search our hearts. A time for us to be real and truthful and honest about following you down the road of compassion. Maybe there are Ninevites in our life. Maybe there are people that, as we sit here, we would rather see the wrath of God versus the love of God fall upon. So, Father, we confess, we open ourselves up to your truth. Just search our hearts. And, Lord, if you show us something that needs to be confessed, then we'll do that. And we'll confess it, we'll agree, and then we'll repent, which means to turn from our way to your way, to trust you, even though we're scared, even though we don't maybe understand it all. So we yield and ask you to prepare our hearts for communion.